I know when I first announced the reading list for this month that putting Faulkner on our April in Paris miniseries was going to be a stretch, but before you turn off this episode in literary scorn, hear me out for a minute. Okay, I concede Faulkner is as American as they come. I mean, he was a regionalist writer and almost exclusively wrote about Yoko Napo County, Mississippi, a fictional place that Faulkner was literarily devoted to. Yeah, pun. But in 1925, after publishing one of his first books, he went to Paris, as all young writers did back then, grew out a beard, and became a Parisian author for all intents and purposes. I'm not kidding you. Check in the description. There's a picture of him with his beard at the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. Welcome back to Didion Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Brianna. Yeah? Um, I'm a college graduate now. Which is scary and exciting. Um, mostly scary. A little bit exciting. Um, I'm an English major. And I'll start teaching in Arizona in May. Yay! Oh, yikes. Okay, well, I have an intro background warm-up question. Why is Faulkner your favorite author, and what books or pieces were the impetus for your interest? Um, Well, William Faulkner and I have the same birthday, so that kind of already ties us up. All right. Um, The first book I read from William Faulkner was As I Lay Dying, uh, my junior year of high school. And that's when I fell in love. <laughs> um, for some reason, the like the high school that we went to, they really like amp up William Faulkner and yeah, they do. weird type of mysteries like that. So Sweet. it's like all throughout the curriculum. Have you read some of his, his more like baseline stuff, like A Rose for Emily, or any of his more quote, quote normal pieces? Um, no, I think I like the weirdness of him. <laughs> so I got a lot of weird books under my belt. I mean, that is why he won the Nobel Prize, right? So, <laughs> fun. All right. I mean, I'm actually, I've been thinking about Faulkner more and more, like, the past few weeks. And, yeah. What sparked your interest? I want to read Absalom, Absalom in 2019. And I've been trying to find the specific edition of Absalom, Absalom, and I haven't been able to find yet, so. Um, I have just a plain old regular version. <laughs> The modern library version, though, like... I know, I just tear up my books, so I just get the cheapest <laughs> copies I can. That's true, well... I'm an old-school reader. Yeah. I mean, like, it's hard to find a copy of Absalom Absalom in general, <laughs> like, just oh, yeah. because people don't read it. I had a special order from Bookman's. <sighs> oh, yes. Okay, we should come <laughs> up with a one-minute summary for The Sound of the Fury, since that is our main book for today. Hmm. One-minute summary. story is compiled of a family um, growing up and experiencing their own challenges and formatting them into one book. Yeah. Should we get specific? Yeah. I'd say two families. One, the Compsons, and then Silsey's family. What's her last name? Gibson? Yeah, and they they all 
I don't know. I liked how we did the categorization of with the DSM manual and tried to categorize every brother. So there are four parts. One of them is Benji, Quentin, Jason, and then Dilsey slash Faulkner. But the first three, they're all brothers and they're very like, they're all dysfunctional, but in different ways. And so it's interesting to try to categorize them as different. And so I think that's the principle or one of the principal goals of the book is to kind of introduce the spectrum of like personality disorder, at least personality in general. And I think that a way that William Faulkner highlights that is how he gives the point of view of the character. And he gives the point of view of each of these characters that he shows as dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And we see like how at least William Faulkner would see their dysfunctional minds and how they would yeah. function. Yeah, and the prose varies accordingly. So it's like you're in Jason's head or in Benji's head. Yeah. Yeah, and Benji in particular is an interesting section because he's developmentally challenged in a way that doesn't allow him to communicate, at least not conventionally. And so he has coherent thoughts, but they're just structured in a very um, unprecedented way. So. In a way that's not like socially easily acceptable. Like you have yeah. to kind of piece it together and figure it out. Yeah, like there's so many different little phrases that are just so much so up to interpretation. Like, uh, I remember one from like the first page of the novel, it's like hitting little. Mm -hmm. It's like, is he smaller because he's far farther away or is he like putting it a short distance or, yeah. Or even just assuming the fact that that first page is even golf. Oh yeah, um, that's true. When we did, when we opened up in your class, uh, I think we reread that page maybe four or five times, just yeah. that one passage, in until finally ways. someone was like, oh, is it talking about golf? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's like a really good intro to how you have to figure out how Benji's mind works. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of gets you like in the mood for piecing everything together and having like figure out how these minds work. Yeah. Well, your favorite section is Quentin, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And why is that? Uh, I think my favorite character is Quentin. I think that um, Jason's obviously a little hard to like. Yeah. Um, and I think Benji might be a little hard to relate to. Yeah. At least from like a white spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I think that Quentin, how he deals with his problems and his dysfunctional mind, so to say. Um, it's like a very relatable and understandable experience that you can, uh, it's kind of like a break from trying to like analyze and figure everything out in Benji's section. Yeah, Because it's that's so true. difficult to piece everything together. Mm -hmm. And then Quentin, it's a little more relatable, relatable and easier to understand. Mm -hmm. But all the same, I think that Benji and Quentin are the two hardest sections. At least because Jay with Jason, he's more, I don't know, he's not more one-dimensional, but he does, it's more obvious, like, what... He's more of a static character. Yeah, and you already know what the family situation is by the mm -hmm. time you get to Jason. And then the Falcon and Dulce section is a really interesting close because it's, like, very summative and very... Mm -hmm. Almost like putting an epilogue, like, at the end, where you take a step back and you view it. Yeah. And I think that 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 writing in the last section is like exponentially different from the other ones. Yeah, definitely. And I think that shows a lot of talent in William Faulkner that he can like 
go back and forth between all these characteristics and point of views and making up these stories yet still having like an intelligent reflection on them at the end. Yeah, and well, he was famous first for conventional writing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then he started getting experimental, which is just so cool. Like, there's a specific genesis point of like Faulkner's experimentalism, and I like that a lot <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, it's not like James Joyce, where like he wasn't really that popular until like after Ulysses. Yeah, and I think that I don't even think William Faulkner is very popular so to say now like I know English teachers love him because you can analyze every single word in his books so English teachers love that but I think that even with like students that I've had no one's ever liked William Faulkner no one's <laughs> ever liked reading those books <laughs> I know well, that's that's the weird part though is because there's so much to gain from them yet they're not popular yeah I think it might be because it has such a reputation of being difficult and like, incomprehensible and yeah so well, I think that um, a lot of people are turned off by the idea of like this is a difficult book and I don't get it um, yeah I mean for me that's all the more reason to read William Faulkner yeah but. like everyone has their things but <laughs> I mean thinking about everyday high school kids mm -hmm. which one are they going to pick not reading a book that they hear is really really hard or challenging themselves like yeah, that's true. Well, and I guess it's hard to assign a book like that, especially in high school, because there aren't really... Summaries can't encapsulate the experience of reading it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, summaries are very subjective. And so... Yeah. Well, yeah. I wonder... I've been thinking a lot about David Foster Wallace and, like... Because I started Infinite Jazz. <laughs> I'm going to get through. <laughs> we'll see. But, Just yeah. Just going to start going through every book. <laughs> Yeah, so Infinite Jest, um, and it, that took a toll reportedly on David Foster Wallace, and he never lived to write another book, and so, or yeah, so, I'm, I was wondering, like, is it, does it depend on the author, or is there kind of a cost for every masterpiece? Well, I think that every author obviously has their own style and their own way of how they produce their books. Mm. Um, but there's authors that I read today that I've read in like my most recent classes that are um, more modern authors, so to say, that uh, their books were published in the 20th century, mm -hmm. or the 21st century, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, that they go through all these experiences and try and fit this emotional turmoil into a book, and sometimes it's just too much. Yeah. And... I think sometimes it's easier to write about other people's stories so that mm. you're not so emotionally invested. So I think that when you do have an emotional connection to a story that you're trying to illustrate into a novel, mm -hmm. um, I think that that can definitely kind of take its toll on you. Yeah, definitely if you're dealing with it in the way that you're writing. Yeah. <laughs> there's, um, there's an interview with Malcolm Gladwell, and I think... I don't remember the artist's name, but they were talking about songwriting, and they said that um, the songwriters usually try to distance themselves from every piece. Like, there's a song um, about this woman's mother, and she just cries every time she sings it, and she has, um, I remember now, it was, an, it was a podcast about Elvis <laughs> and Parapraxis, and 
just, I think it is important to distance yourself. Um, I mean, even if it is at the cost of something really wonderful, masterful. Because there are authors like Murakami where he just, I don't know if he writes about personal experiences, um, but he does produce amazing art. And then there are authors like Fitzgerald and he just kind of writes about himself. Or Joseph Conrad. Um, yeah. Heart of Darkness, he, Joseph Conrad actually, like, sailed the Congo River and um, did, like, some real-life events that he wrote about in Heart of Darkness, and mm -hmm. Heart of Darkness is probably one of, like, the most classic pieces of literature. Mm-hmm. Oh, Joseph Conrad, what a guy. <laughs> what a guy. I, I love his work. some quotes of William Faulkner, and I think I decided that he's the smartest man in the whole <laughs> world. As you can tell from the title of this episode, this is part one of three. Our April in Paris series really does center on Faulkner this year, sorry for you guys who like Hemingway out there, but nevertheless we are getting into the history of comics next week and then we will resume back with our discussion of Sound and the Fury the week after. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there is an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at Didion and Hawthorne.Blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at DidionIn, two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to DH&I. Still there? One more thing then, remember that leaving a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!